This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It was, without question, the most difficult program I have ever anchored. All kinds of breaking news yesterday during my hour, during Media Buzz. And it was a great challenge. And I was delighted to be in the chair. But behind the scenes, all kinds of adjustments had to be made on the fly. That's the nature of live television, particularly uh, in wartime. So... Just to give you a little feel for what was going on, at about a quarter to 11 Eastern Time, I finished recording the opening of the show, which we always tape a few minutes in advance. And I said to my producers in the control room, if anything changes between now and 11 o'clock, we'll have to do this live. Five minutes later, 10 minutes before air, came confirmation that yesterday's round of hostages had been released. And so I had to completely rewrite the top or dictate it to somebody who was making changes in the teleprompter. And we went live with the fact that it wasn't just that the hostages were expected to be released, but actually had come confirmation uh, from Israel that the additional 14 Israeli hostages had, in fact, been released. But that wasn't the end of it. And also, you know, you have to adjust what you're talking about at the top of the show to reflect this breaking news. I mean, right now, it maybe sounds incremental, but... It was delayed by a couple of hours on Saturday. It was delayed by many hours because of various demands by Hamas. So in the second segment of the show, which was just fortunate timing, I was interviewing Fox correspondent Alex Hogan in Israel. And there was a question hanging over the entire process at that point. And she was able to suddenly confirm she didn't even have this information at the beginning of that interview. That one American hostage had been released. Four-year-old Abigail Eden. Now, just stop there for a minute and think. What kind of barbaric society kidnaps a four-year-old girl? I mean, we, we got the answer with the first batch of hostages released on Friday, where 
the youngest was two years old, and the oldest was 85 years old. Think about the sickness of that. No civilians, by the way, are supposed to be taken in wartime. But that doesn't trouble Hamas, which has no regard for human life. And I had a graphic made up showing the youngest and oldest uh, from Friday's release, just to, to hammer home the point, because, you know, Hamas wants everyone to believe this is a humanitarian gesture. Uh, one of its uh, statements said was, blessed by God. Yeah, what it was, was a kidnapping of a whole bunch of people, to 240 by best estimate, to use as leverage to get a four-day pause in the fighting. Today is supposed to be the last day which enables Hamas, of course, to regroup militarily to continue the war, as well as the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners, some of them killers. Israel had to release three times as many, and these were combatants that were captured, not two-year-old children, not four-year-old girls. And the whole story, as uh, Alex Hogan was telling me live on the air is is so heartbreaking and tragic because Abigail Eden's parents were murdered by Hamas. Two of her siblings hid in cabinets and were not taken, but she had been held and finally released yesterday. So we got that news. Um, and then, you know, as the show is going on, we're, uh, I'm ad-libbing at the beginning of uh, just about every segment, uh, the latest news, and then, you know, we're over on time. And so uh, on the fly, I had to uh, cut certain things and trim certain things, and I was dictating, you know, what to take out. Uh, and that's fine. That's what you do on live TV. It's just there was so much going on that it was a lot to handle. And then... Media Buzz usually ends at 11.57. I had gotten word in my ear that President Biden was going to speak at noon. And I thought, okay, the next show, which is a new show out of New York, can handle that. But just when I signed off, immediately my executive producer got in my ear and said, don't leave, don't leave. Biden's coming out early. First of all, Joe Biden never comes out early. He's usually like an hour late. And next thing I knew, there was the president on the screen addressing the hostage situation and the release of Abigail Eden, as I knew he would, from Nantucket. And so I stayed in the chair and just told viewers exactly that. Here is President Biden talking about the hostage situation from Nantucket. And then I stayed in case I had to wrap up what he had to say. But by the time he finished, uh, the next show in New York was able to take over. So, it, you know, this is what we do in live TV. I'm very glad to have been um, on duty, shall we say, when all that was happening. Now, I guess we'll call this story number one. Yeah, Biden said that... Uh, Abigail Eden is free, and she is in Israel now. That she'd been through a terrible trauma. What she endured is unthinkable. As we had explained earlier, both her parents were murdered. So now you have three kids 
who are orphans, thanks to the brutality of Hamas. Thank God she is home, said Joe Biden, who, by the way, deserves a lot of credit for his behind-the-scenes diplomacy. I know the war is unpopular with many Democrats or the American role in the war. I know that, therefore, Biden is suffering in the polls, particularly among young people who may be more inclined to support Gaza, to support Hamas, or, and to hate Israel. But when the negotiations got stuck on Saturday, Joe Biden got in direct touch with the emir of Qatar, which was acting as the middleman in these negotiations. And Biden got it unstuck, and Biden's diplomacy got the first American hostage released yesterday, and we are hoping two more today, although there seems to be difficulties about that, and there always is when negotiating uh, with Hamas. But, you know, Biden is 81 years old, and his age is an absolute legitimate issue in this presidential campaign. But the flip side of that is he's got a lot of experience, especially in foreign policy. And the patience and the relationships to handle this extraordinarily difficult situation. Okay, Israel and Hamas were at odds over the hostages and prisoners set to be released on Monday, today, the last day of the ceasefire, putting their truce on shaky ground, raising questions about whether the pause could be extended. Now, they each kind of signaled, Israel and Hamas, some willingness over the weekend to prolong the truce, because part of the deal is if Hamas continues to release 10 hostages a day, they would get an extra day of a ceasefire, which of course helps Hamas militarily. There's no question that, and Israel knows this, and the Israeli Defense Forces know this. But both sides, uh, looking at a new story here, have taken issue with the names presented by the other for the final day today. Uh, one person speaking on condition of anonymity, telling uh, the New York Times the Qataris are working with both sides to resolve it and avoid delays. We'll see how this works out today. But Qatar has indicated The Qataris have indicated that one potential challenge is whether Hamas can locate more hostages. Because some of them are being held in different parts of Gaza by other armed groups, including the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So I'm sure that Hamas would love to tell Qatar that it's got more hostages to release. But it may not even know where these hostages are. That's how fraught the situation is. That may be why the promise was only to release 50 women and children. And we haven't reached that yet because, as I'm speaking to you now at least, uh, there is yet another hang-up. In related news, Elon Musk met today in Israel with Bibi Netanyahu, 
Musk, who, of course, created a huge financial headache for himself by positively commenting on an anti-Semitic tweet about Jews hating white people. Uh, many Jews are white people, and it's, it's complete BS. And he's been trying to repair the damage as major advertisers have pulled out. I'll come back to that. So uh, he was taken by the prime minister to the, uh, the kibbutz, one of the Jewish communities where people live and work full-time, uh, that was attacked by the Hamas terrorist on October 7th. Statement from the PM's office says Netanyahu showed Musk the horrors of the massacre in the kibbutz. Um, and there was some footage put out showing Elon Musk nodding as he walked among the ruined houses and walls riddled with bullet holes. Well, I'm glad he went. Obviously, it's damage control, but he should see firsthand the damage done by that brutal sneak attack back on October the 7th. Meanwhile, police in Burlington, Vermont, have arrested or at least identified a suspect in connection with the shooting of three students, three men in their 20s who attend American universities. They were shot and wounded, this was back on Saturday, by a white man with a handgun while they were walking near the University of Vermont. Two of them were wearing wearing Palestinian kafiyas, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, a traditional headdress. They were speaking a hybrid of English and Arabic before the man shot them without saying anything. Says the chief of the Burlington police, in this charged moment, no one can look at this incident and not suspect that it may have been a hate-motivated crime. Well, I don't want to rush to judgment. Police are investigating. But I would be shocked if it wasn't a hate crime. And I feel just as strongly that this is wrong, that this is terrible, that this is tragic, as I do about any attacks on Jews by people who don't like Israel. Just as I feel just as strongly that when innocent civilian families in Gaza are killed as part of the war effort, as I've stated many times, Israel tries its best to minimize civilian casualties, but it is virtually impossible when you have Hamas using its own people as human shields. In the largest hospital, where two Hostages were taken on October 7th. That's the footage that has been released in recent days. Um, Hamas setting up rocket launchers, command and control posts in children's schools and other, in mosques and other civilian targets that ordinarily would be off limits. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Story two. The Washington Post piece starts out with interviewing three friends who uh, are not happy with Joe Biden. And by the way, 
since the politics of this seems to be that Biden's unpopularity, and he's already been unpopular for other reasons, notably his age, but also inflation, and also the border, and you can go through the list. But if Biden's handling and staunch support of Israel while also pushing Netanyahu, as he successfully did, to do the four-day pause to try to get hostages released, um, I've seen it suggested that this may cost him the presidency. And you know what? If it does, it still will have been worth it. Obviously, it was risky from the beginning. A fraught situation. Anyway, what this uh, Washington Post story is about is that many young voters have voiced concern and disapproval of Biden's handling of the Israel-Gaza war. Gen Z and millennial voters... By the way, you're either born from 1997 to 2012 or 1981 to 96, have typically supported Democratic candidates, and young people were key to flipping swing states uh, in 2020. But conversations with college students underscore that Biden's handling of the war threatens to diminish enthusiasm for him among young voters with many students and other young people divided uh, on how they will use their vote and their organizing power. Against the backdrop of concerns about Biden's age, a number of liberal students expressed openness to third-party candidates and frustration with a likely Trump-Biden rematch. Biden has remained unapologetic. He did an op-ed for The Post ran on Saturday. As long as Hamas clings to its ideology of destruction, a ceasefire is not peace. Now, um, NPR, PBS NewsHour, Maris Poll recently found 48% of Gen Z and millennial adults saying Israel's military response has been too much compared with the 38% of the public overall having that view. Poll from NBC, 70% of voters 18 to 34 disapprove of Biden's handling of the war. Now, you know, many Israelis are critical of Netanyahu. His poll numbers are at an all-time low, largely because the sneak attack happened on his watch. Clearly, Israel was not prepared. And Speaking of politics, oh, it's the New York Times that has a piece on Trump's veek stakes. Now, remember, nobody's voted yet. Certainly, Trump is considered the front runner, given his enormous lead in the GOP primary, despite the uh, progress of Nikki Haley. And so uh, this says that uh, the former president has casually weighed the pros and cons of some contenders. With friends and advisors, his team has discussed possible parameters like whether a woman on the ticket would help win back suburban women who abandoned him in the last election or if choosing a person of color would be a smart choice. Either way, any resume for the number two spot on the ticket must include um, 
such Trump-specific requirements as absolute loyalty to the Trump brand, a willingness to filter every decision and public comment through a subservient lens. In other words, he doesn't want a vice president who's a star who's going to overshadow him. And then, you know, then there's a sort of a box for each one that might be in contention. Um, In addition to Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pompeo, there's also said to be uh, Senator Tom Cotton, Senator Marco Rubio, and then it goes into Vivek Ramaswamy, Christy Nome, the governor, um, Carrie Lake, a longtime journalist, very telegenic, charismatic, lost her race in Arizona and declared that it was a fraud. Kind of a Trumpian move. And even former press secretary, now governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who delayed in endorsing her former boss but has now endorsed Trump. All right, number three. Back to Elon. X, the social media company, could lose as much as $75 million in advertising revenue by the end of the year as major brands pause their marketing campaigns. After, as I mentioned at the top, Elon Musk's endorsement of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Internal documents viewed by the New York Times show the company is in a more difficult position than previously known. And the concerns about Musk have spread far beyond companies including IBM, Apple, and Disney. The documents list more than 200 um, ad units, I don't know why that word is used, of companies from the likes of Airbnb, Amazon, Coke, Microsoft, many of which have halted or are considering pausing their ads. The documents come from X's sales team, meant to track the losses in recent weeks. They list how much ad revenue ex-employees fear the company could lose through the end of the year if advertisers do not return. And I would say it's not looking great on that front. Uh, X said in a statement that $11 million in revenue was at risk and that the exact figure fluctuated as some advertisers returned and others increased spending. Uh, Nice attempt, but the final figure is obviously going to be a lot higher than that, even if it doesn't end up being $75 million. And remember, uh, even before this, Twitter was losing uh, lots of money because of various feelings that the site had become more toxic, has allowed more anti-Semitic com- uh, content, although that given the surge in anti-Semitic emotions and vandalism and attacks in the United States, here at home, maybe an increase in anti-Semitic comments and posts was inevitable on any social media platform. Airbnb halting more than $1 million in advertising. Uber cutting back on $800,000. Other brands pausing or stopping. Jack in the Box. Netflix. 
uh, NBC Universal, owned by Comcast, has actually, actually, NBC Universal has continued to post content on the platform. Oh, without paying X to ensure that it reaches a broad audience. Let's go to number four. This is a piece about the Beatles. This is not me popping off about the Beatles. This is a New York Times Magazine story that I disagree with, but that does make a larger point that is worth considering. So it starts off questioning, you know the story by now, the, the old demo of John Lennon singing this song called Now and Then that all three other Beatles play on and was released through the magic of AI. The author says, the first few times he listened to it, watched it, because there's also an accompanying uh, video, it's so moving. Many people were moved by this. To hear John Lennon singing again with Paul and Ringo and George playing the guitar, it was emotional for a lot of people. Some people posted they cried. But this author says he finally started asking questions. Does it really make sense to use a song originally written by Lennon alone with no known intention of ever bringing it to his former bandmates as the basis of a Beatles song? Uh, is this something he would have embraced or been repulsed by? McCartney says, we all played on it, so it was a genuine Beatles recording. On one hand, who is more qualified than McCartney to issue this edict of authenticity? On the other, why did he feel the need? And within days, it was topping the charts in Britain and almost in America getting to the top. And so, look, I would just say it was Yoko Ono who turned these tapes of her late husband over to the surviving Beatles. And she approves of it. And Lennon's son, Sean, approves of it. And Paul and Ringo approve of it. So who do you want to make the judgment call? The people who were most close to John Lennon. But here's where it gets broader. And talking about the, what may happen as a result of these artificial intelligence uh, gains. This path has less to do with software producing new work and more to do with text advances excuse me, text advances facilitating the ongoing monetization of existing intellectual profit. Okay, what's he talking about? We are awash in reboots and rehashes and re-releases, sequels and prequels and spin-offs, movies about toys, toys inspired by movies. And as the recent Hollywood strikes brought to public attention, movie studios are eager for opportunities to assert ownership of writers and actors' creative output. YouTube introduced a music AI incubator with the Universal Music Group artists, including the estate of Frank Sinatra. Peter Jackson, who produced the uh, Get Back documentary on the Beatles, has acknowledged the possibility that the Beatles archive could, revisited with fresh tools, generate even more new material. So, there's no reason to think it won't in the future, this new tech, take the form of beloved real-life entertainers being endlessly represented to us with help from new tools. There has always been money in taking known cash cows, the Beatles prominent among them, and sprucing them up 
for new media or new sensibilities, new mixes, remasters, deluxe editions. In fact, the Beatles released a red album and a blue album, which is basically a bunch of their old songs that have been remixed and remastered for even greater clarity. I've listened to a lot of them, and you can tell, absolutely tell the difference. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. So ponder that while I go to number five. Piece in the Wall Street Journal I've been trying to get to for about a week. It begins, ladies and gentlemen. You're feeling distracted, can't get your work done. Your headphones detect your lack of focus, suggest you take a break. While a headband beam signals to adjust your brain activity and energize you. That's the future technologists imagine. And this is not some crazy publication. This is in the journal. A variety of devices are being developed to enhance the brain's performance in day-to-day life. Right now, the market for devices that can read brain activity and translate it into actions is in its infancy. But thanks in part to Elon Musk's Neuralink, which is developing implantable brain-computer interfaces that can record data from thousands of brain cells. This is wild. Investment and interest in these devices has soared in recent years. New wearable devices designed to provide feedback during day-to-day activities for medical interventions, as well as decades of research into how the brain works. Last year, Neuralink showed that a monkey could control a cursor with its mind and type out a message that paralyzed patients implanted with brain recording device could use their brain signals to text with an iPhone. Now, these devices are unlikely to become blockbuster mass market consumer products anytime soon, have to get federal approval, Uh, but wearable brain sensing devices, as opposed to implanted, could offer a broader swath of cognitive feedback and other brain enhancements. I, I mean, I just think this is almost approaching sci-fi levels. Um, you may have noticed that a bunch of people, including Sean Diddy Combs, including uh, some other well-known celebrities, including Andrew Cuomo, including Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, have all been suddenly accused of sexual assault involving long-ago incidents. For example, New York Mayor Adams is said by a woman to have sexually sought to her back in 1993. That's well over a quarter century ago. And the reason is, the reason this is all happening with, with Andrew Cuomo is the same woman, Brittany Camasso, who has already accused him of sexual assault publicly as part of the scandal that ended up with his ouster as New York governor. Because there was a law passed, a federal law, that gave one year for women who um, believed they were sexually assaulted to file a claim, even if the alleged action took place many, many, many years ago. And so, on the one hand, you know, should there be a statute of limitations for these kinds of awful but in these cases, alleged crimes. 
or are some of the women who are filing, whose names we previously knew, who previously accused these prominent people, celebrities, politicians, and so on, of sexual assault, just to try to make some money from a lawsuit, and how do these men, some of whom may be guilty, some of whom may not, defend themselves over something that happened in 1993, for example. In the case of Sean Diddy Combs, P. Diddy, um, I think there were three claims now that have been filed under this law. And I want to close, point of personal privilege, as they say on Capitol Hill, um, with a tribute to Charlie Peters. Now, you may not recognize that name. He founded the Washington Monthly and was the editor of the Washington Monthly from its founding back in 1969 until 2000. And then he retired and turned it over to other editors. Now, there was a time, especially here in the Capitol, where the Washington Monthly was must-reading. Because the whole premise of the Monthly, because Charlie Peters was a Kennedy liberal, worked in the Kennedy administration. But he wanted to challenge liberal orthodoxy. He pushed what you guess might call neoliberalism. So over the years, the monthly ran many, many pieces saying that this government program didn't work or this liberal philosophy didn't work, in effect taking on his own side. But And there was just a time when, you know, people were quoting the Washington Monthly. But his greatest legacy, and this is where it gets personal, is he helped train a whole generation of young journalists. And I would include myself in that number. I didn't work for the Washington Monthly, but I wrote at least four pieces for the Monthly. I mean, other prominent names who went on to great success, Jonathan Alter, Mike Kinsley, Catherine Boo, and on and on. People you've heard of, people you haven't heard of, who went on to be very successful in journalism. David Ignatius, now with the Washington Post. And Charlie was a curmudgeon, a lovable curmudgeon, I would say. And when he really got riled up about a piece and and what changes it needs, he would do what was called the rain dance. He would just kind of hop around and spew about what the story needed. Um, The last piece I wrote for the Washington Monthly was an investigative story about the Carter administration titled How Chip Carter got his new job. And it talked about a friend of Jimmy Carter's um, who started a company that started to get a lot of contracts from the Carter administration and then hired the president's son. I mean, this took a lot of work, a lot of piecing together. But it got picked up um, by several major newspapers. So... Charlie's just one of these guys. He, you know, he wasn't uh, somebody you saw on television. 
His magazine never sold more than 30,000 copies, but he and his magazine punched far above their weight. And I'm glad to see all the tributes coming out. Uh, One woman wrote that Charlie absolutely insisted that she finish a piece on deadline for him, even though she had this other deadline, which was her wedding. (laughs) That gives you an idea of how dedicated Charlie Peters was to this magazine or how crazy he was. Hey, hope you had a great weekend, a great Thanksgiving. Chance to see family and friends. And so much to cover right now. Thanks for sticking with this. Always enjoy the chance to talk to you. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.